If you have a Bible, please open it to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now, if you read through Scripture, you'll find that there are many ways that we sort of relate to God, many relationships that we have or ways that we get to know God or have a relationship with him. The first one is, of course, simply the fact that he is God and creator, and we are those who have been created. He is the potter, and we are the clay. We know that we are to relate to him like this, after all, because he says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. But we also relate to God as though he is our king. He is our ruler and our authority. Revelation eleven fifteen talks about the fact that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So we are not just to relate to God as though he is our creator, although we do relate to him like that. We also relate to God as though he is our king, he is our sovereign, we are his citizens and those who dwell in his reign. But the most normal category that is given for us to relate to God is one of family. We get to call God our father. Probably, although this is not the time for it, probably don't realize how grand of a thing that is. Our culture takes this for granted. This should not be taken for granted. The ability to call the sovereign and transcendent God your father, that he looks over you specifically and protects you and provides for you is a wondrous and magnificent thing. We get to call him Abba, the same word that our Lord used of him. He is one who cares for us, watches out for us, provides for us, protects us. We also get to relate to our Lord as brother. Jesus takes on flesh and comes and dwells among us to save those who have sinned against him. And yet the book of Hebrews says he's not ashamed to call us brother. He's God on high. He dwells with us in mortal flesh and he is still not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Given that this is the case, given that we oftentimes refer to God as Father and we think of Jesus as our brother, that that familial relationship is sort of hard-baked into the Christian message. It is natural that we think of ourselves as siblings in a family. We are brothers and sisters alike together. This is natural. And it flows not just from the fact that we relate to God this way, but even from the fact of how God has built his church to begin with. Even before Jesus going back into the Old Testament and the calling of Abraham, Abram, then Abraham, and the provision to Abraham, not of a people, but of a family. The 12 sons of Jacob, bearing witness to what the church was meant to be. We are part of that family, connected not by our own blood, but by the very blood of Jesus Christ. It's an important remark to make. Family is the most basic set of loved ones that God will ever give you. You might like your family, you might not like your family, but nevertheless, and sometimes you like them and sometimes you don't, but nevertheless, they're the ones that God has given you. They're the ones that God has placed in your lives as loved ones. It doesn't take much to realize how fundamental this is in human existence. You can lose a friend in the sixth grade and you can lose a father in the sixth grade and you can have a friend in the sixth grade who is close to you and a father who is distant from you and I guarantee that when you're 35, the one you're going to miss is not the friend who you lost. It will be your father. We have blood ties built into the very nature of who we are. It is the way that God has made us. So if the church is a family, and if we are to relate to one another in the manner of brothers and sisters, that should say something about how we care for one another. This is true materially, it's true spiritually. So then how is the church, or more 
particularly? How is Crossway to care for the least among us? Let us go and read 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 16. Paul writes to Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has her hope set on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is, wor- denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their household, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so it may care for those who are truly widows." This is the word of our God. Today we come to a text that is, um, forgive me when I I put it this way, hopefully you'll understand what I mean, a bit of an oddity. It is a very narrow text, and while ostensibly about widows, it is likely about much more than that for us. Widows were, back then, what they are today, women who have been married, whose husband has died. But the the word actually has a much larger context then. It's not a specific category simply of women whose husbands have died, but women who have been left deserted, whether that is through divorce, whether that is through death, or whether that is through simply a husband who has left and gone away. This sort of desertion was not abnormal, especially within the context of the church. So in 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul writes in talking about marriage and and specifically people who have come to know Christ and women here, I think is the the main part of this, but it also applied to men who have come to know Christ after being pagan. He says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So the idea is that there are two people who are married, living their nice little pagan Greek lives, and one of them comes to know the Lord, and Paul is talking to them about how they are to handle this. They are not to seek divorce from their pagan wife or husband. But if that other pagan wife or husband desires to leave them, Paul says that they should go. But in the case of women, that would leave them without. They would be deserted in that case. These women are left very poor, without help or hope. They were poor, But not like our poor. They had all of the disadvantage of poverty that we have today without any of the hope. 
because this was the major group that needed to be helped. Paul, I think, singles out this group for Timothy. But we need to remember something very particular. Paul was one man writing to one other man in one specific city, in one historical context, in one situation. It was a unique situation. And so it doesn't do for us to come and say, well, this is what we've got to do for widows, and that's all this text means is how we deal with widows. It clearly is not. Because widows were representative of the poorest of the poor. Widows were representative of those who had no hope in the world, no worldly help at all. This is exactly how we should think through how we treat the least among us as family members. Because of this, what I would like to do is run through the text this morning, laying out what Paul says before we take a step back and apply it to our own situation here at Crossway. Now, for those of you who tend to look at the outline and you tend to worry, a good portion of our outline will not be presented before you. We will go through the text and you'll be like, lunch is waiting. So the second half will go a little bit quicker. It's not going to take us two hours to get through this. But if I go an hour 59, you've been warned. So first thing I'd like to point out is the true family that Paul mentions here. Paul didn't want Timothy to view these people like they were simply sheep to be ordered, but as a family to be cared for. Older men are not to be instructed because you are their pastor, but they are to be loved and respected like your actual father. The same goes for mothers and sisters and brothers. You're not to treat them like you rule over them. You're not to treat them like they are simply partners for you. This is an incredibly important point, and it kind of sets up the rest of the passage. Timothy, don't think that simply because you're commanded to teach and to preach, that they're only under your authority, and that's the only way that you are to relate to them. You're not a coach, you're not a manager, and you're not just a shepherd. You are a brother. You are a son to these people. And so you are to treat them like that. And we can easily sanitize our relationship with one another. We care about the same things. We think in large part in the same way. We care in some sort of crass way about the same organization. We might even care about the same goals. We care about the same principles. We can do all of that and not actually care about one another. But that cannot be how Timothy relates to these people. The very fact that Paul is saying you relate to them as a father or as a mother or as a sister or as a brother indicates that you relate to them in, first and foremost, love not simply in terms of a relationship within an organization. Timothy cannot treat them like a brother, like a sister, like a mother, like a father, without doing it in love. And he cannot perform the role that Paul has left for him without treating them that way. So Paul first mentions the true family in verses 1 through 2. In verses 3 through 8, then, he mentions true widows. Not all widows are true widows. Again, you can be under the definition of a widow. You can be a woman whose husband has died or who has been deserted. But Paul is not just interested in people who fulfill a definition, but people who fulfill a sort of state in life, people who are utterly and totally without hope. Whether these women have lost their husband by death, divorce, or desertion, they are totally without hope. Look at what Paul says in verse 5. What is the definition of one who is truly a widow? They are truly without hope in the world. So they demonstrate this by being left alone, that they hope only in God. And therefore, they continue in supplication night and day. So why does she do this? Why does this woman look like this? Is it just because she's super holy? No. I mean, it might be. But it's also because she's super empty. She has absolutely nothing. 
She looks out at the world, and the only hope that she possibly has of even eating that day is because God is going to be gracious to her. Her hope isn't in social welfare. Her hope isn't in family. Her hope is only that God might provide for her. These are people who are completely and totally without. These are people, or women specifically in our context, who without somebody stepping in, whose very lives would have been a very precarious situation. The one who is truly alone supplicates themselves day and night before the Father. The one who is truly alone and has only the hope of God prays to him continuously, seeking his help. Yet, he goes on to say in verse 6, one who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. A woman who wants to keep up appearances, who wants to continue to indulge in the good things of the world, even though she's been deserted, is dead even while she lives, probably in two ways. First, the fact that she doesn't actually have resources, but she's simply indulging in the same practices that she always has means that her life is going to run aground very quickly in the physical, material realm. But it also means that she's not placing her hope in God. She's not relying upon him to do exactly what Jesus taught us to do, and that is to pray, give us this day our daily bread. She's likely cut off not only from the hope of God, but even from hope in the world. So Paul excludes from consideration those who are not truly destitute. Women who have other avenues of gaining provision for themselves ought to take that. It is only those who are truly widows that Paul is talking about. And what Paul does then is point first and foremost to the family. And you might say, well, you just got done telling us the church is the family. We are related to one another. We ought to talk about one another as though we're related. And by the way, I want to take a step back and I want to say something very particular about this. We don't just talk like we're related to one another. Okay? This isn't just a metaphor. The scripture never says you ought to treat them like they're that way. He, he does say that, but continuously Paul's putting forward that you are brothers and sisters. James says you open your mouth to bless the Lord and you talk down or you curse a brother that way. Listen, you're not just relating to one another as though you're brothers and sisters. By the blood of Christ, you are brothers and sisters. You are blood-related, just not with the blood that flows through your veins. So, while Paul points first to the family, it's not even to the family of faith, it's to their literal blood family. It is to those who they know through birth or through law. Just because we are family doesn't mean that we get to overlook the natural ways that family ought to work. It is the basic way that God has ordained the world to support people. God has given us one another. He has also given us those who we are related to by blood, also given us those who we are related to by law. His bond is recognized not only within the church, but in every single society on earth. Every single one recognizes the importance of mothers and fathers, of sisters and brothers, and of how we are to relate to them and take care of them. That is precisely why those who do not take care of their family are not just deniers of the faith, but they are worse than unbelievers. That's an incredibly strong comment there. He says, if you have a widow in your family, if your mother has been left destitute and you do not take care of her, you are not just somebody who isn't following the faith. You're worse than an unbeliever. The reason why he says that is because even unbelievers know enough to take care of their moms. So if you don't do that, my goodness, don't just deny the faith, but you are farther away from God than even the worst of pagans. Families are to take care of their own, therefore, and widows with families 
are to be taken care of by them. So there are true families, there are true widows, and now we get to see the true qualifications in verses 9 through 10. Paul limits those who will receive assistance from the church to several very specific, frankly, qualifications. One, she must be over 60. Two, she must have had one husband. And third, more generally, she must have been devoted to many good works, including raising her children, showing hospitality to strangers, washing the feet or serving the saints, caring for the afflicted, being devoted generally to good works. Now, such a list is very, very general, but it gives a strong impression that it is a woman who has devoted a great deal of her life to the church and to simply doing Christian ministry. As a matter of fact, the qualifications that are given here are so specific that many go on to say that what's actually happening here is not just a list of people who are being assisted, but it's almost like a separate ministry altogether. So you have elders and deacons in chapter 3, and then in chapter 5 you have this separate sort of women's ministry where these older women are doing the service of going around and helping younger women know what it means to be a younger woman who is married and to walk faithfully as a Christian. It looks a lot like what Titus 2 says to us that older women are likewise to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So some look at this and they say, this is a separate kind of group altogether and a separate ministry altogether. And while I think that that's really appealing, and I don't just mean it's an appealing way to read scripture, I mean, I I think that's a really appealing ministry to have set up. I don't think that's probably what Paul is talking about here. At the very least, he simply means that this enrollment that we read of in verse 9 is a way to put people on a list, a permanent list of people that will be helped until the day they die by the church. And that is why he points out these particular qualifications. The question then becomes, why should the church have qualifications like this, and why have these qualifications be so narrow? Because it doesn't make a lot of sense. Are we supposed to do good to as many people as we possibly can? And certainly, the churches can help more people than just widows who are really truly destitute over the year, over the age of 60, who have only been married to one man. Why is it that Paul does this? After all, we know Galatians 6.10, a passage that we're going to come back to a couple of times, says that as we have opportunity, we ought to do good to everyone and especially to the household of faith. I think that the answer comes in remembering that the early church was extremely poor. Poverty within the early church was not even like poverty that we might talk about and experience here in the United States. It was a poverty unlike much of what you of I have ever seen. And most of those poor people who came in had no resources to help them. So we have something like James 2.5, where James says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God... Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? James doesn't mean that there are no rich people who come to know the Lord, but he does mean that it is primarily the poor that God draws to himself, and that was certainly true in the early church. Paul backs this up in 1 Corinthians where he talks in the first chapter about the nature of the Corinthian church that wanted to be so high and mighty, who wanted to be so filled with these great gifts. And Paul says, guys, not many of you are very noble. Not many of you are wise in the world. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say that God has chose what was nothing in the world. The world viewed you as nothing so that God could make something out of you. So the early church was incredibly poor. And 
This is not just because God has a heart for the poor. It's true. But it's also just because of the nature of poor people. If you go to other countries, if you go to third world countries and you see the kind of slums that those people live in, you realize what hopelessness looks like. Poverty in America always, always has hope attached to it. There's always the hope that the next election will turn things around or that you can go out and get some education or that you can get some support from somewhere. You can go down to an office. You can find a better job. You might even win the lottery. But there's always hope being held out for you. But it's not for the poor. Talk to a missionary just this week who does a great deal of work in Africa, and he says the reason why the African church is exploding is not just because the Spirit of God is there. It is. That's why. But one of the great reasons is because when you bring these people hope, that's almost something they've never heard of before. They have nothing in front of them. There is no hope for education. There's no hope for support. Their family is just as poor as they are. There is no way up for them. There is no way out for them. So when you tell them that Christ has given them eternal life, they will hook on to it. Poverty in the early church causes two concurrent problems. First of all, and very apparently, there isn't a lot of money. And secondly, unfortunately, there's a lot of need. And so the reason why Paul is going through and narrowing down the list of people who are available here, I think, is probably because there's just not that much money to go around. There's not an ability for the early church to be able to support a huge list of widows. And so Paul says, these are the type of people that you need to take care of. And I think what he's doing here is picking out people who have given great care to the church. So women who have spent a lifetime working and caring and thinking and helping the church, like mothers, Paul teaching them, you are to treat them like mothers so that when your mother needs help, those who have taken care of you, you turn around and you take care of them. It doesn't mean that the woman who is converted when she's 60 and loses her husband, who doesn't have all these good works in her past, isn't loved or taken care of by God. It doesn't mean that. It simply means the church only has so much to go around, only so many resources to give. So there are true qualifications. And lastly, before we go to our exhortations, there are true solutions. Problems still arise. Paul warns that younger women who are below 60, and some of you are like, that is younger, great. Younger women who are below, that's, no? Okay, we'll move on. Younger women who are below 60, who are put on this list, might want to get off of the list, okay? So the idea is that they're below 60, and that that list is kind of meant to be a permanent thing, but eventually passions arise in them. They want to be married for all of the reasons that women want to be married. They want provision from the man, but they also want relationship with the man, and so because of that, they might be drawn away. The problem is that that list is, because of the limited resources, there specifically for people who are destitute and have no hope. If they could marry, they should have married. To go back on that after you've been put on the list is a way of sort of saying, well, I thought that I couldn't, but I guess I'm going to. If a woman turns around and marries after being put on the list, the question is, she wasn't really without help, was she? She had a recourse. As a matter of fact, she has the exact same recourse that Paul's going to tell her she should have taken in the first place. And so because younger women are more prone to that, Paul says they are not to be enrolled. Instead, they are to go out and find husbands. Now, the word condemnation that is used here, I think, is probably a bit too strong. I think that the NIV is more right when it says they will incur judgment. That is, because they have gone on the list inappropriately and now want to be taken off of it, the church is going to have to deal with them in some sort of uh, 
some sort of disciplinary matter. The second problem is that if they are younger women and they are active, they will not have a good outlet for their energy. And Paul sees this as an occasion for Satan to work among them, as Chaucer is famously quoted as saying, idle hands are the devil's tool. And so they will not have an outlet for their work. The, the work of a, a woman in the first century, which would naturally be taken up with watching kids and managing a household and, and doing the work of the ministry, as Paul has laid out, they won't be taken up with that. And so what Paul is concerned by is that they're going to have time to spend being idols and gossipers. Now, what Paul might do if he were here and present with us is phrase this wholly differently today because he might be worried about a whole different set of circumstances today. But in his day, in Ephesus, to the churches that Timothy is, is kind of leading and walking with, he is concerned about this. So these problems are being addressed by Paul. You are to go, he says, and find a husband, and if possible, be busy with the good works that God has set before you. The church Paul summarizes in verse 16, should not be unduly burdened. It must take care of the needs of those who have them, but it has to be judicious in doing so, and only after the worldly family has lost all ability to do that. Now again, I think we're dealing with a situation which occurred in the first century, which occurred in one specific town, under the care of one specific elder. What can we take away from this? And so I briefly just want to give you five expectations that Paul, I think, has buried in this text for us. The first one is expectations of the family. Expectations of the family. Friends, you are to take care of your family. You're just flat out supposed to. Not just your faith family. We'll get to that. You are to take care of the family of believers that sit around you. It is your responsibility to do that. But God has also given you the family that he has attached you to warts and all. They are yours to take care of. And as sovereignly as he has put you here, and as sovereignly and providentially as he has made the people who you are members of this church with, as your brothers and sisters in the Lord, he has just as providentially given you your other brothers and sisters, whether they know the Lord or not. God chose your parents for you, even if you can't figure out why. And so you are to take care of them. It is as we even read here, a grave, grave sin to not do this. I think we often sort of skip over these. When you come to those lists of sin in 1 Corinthians 6 or in Galatians 5 or in even 2 Timothy, when Paul talks about children who are disobedient, we think children who are disobedient. You're talking about thieves and homosexuality and you're talking about people who rob and steal and you're talking about people who are idolaters and then you just throw in this disobedient thing. But it mattered it matters because what they're talking about are people, are children, who don't care for their parents. Who don't watch out for them. Who don't do the basic things that God has placed before children to do for their parents. It was one of the first sins that we see in Scripture. Not just the taking of the apple or the taking of the fruit, probably a peach, and eating it. But also then, in the fourth chapter, we have Cain and Abel. And the infamous words coming out of Cain's mouth, Am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, dude, stop stabbing. Help. Be kind. Do what is right before the Lord. Friend, you are your brother's keeper. You are to take care of your family, whether you like them or not, whether you are like them or not, whether they are Christian or not. It is your responsibility to take care of them. You're not simply to pawn them off to the state. You're not simply to rely on Social Security and the nursing home to love them. 
That doesn't mean that you can't rely on the nursing home. It doesn't mean that you can't rely on Social Security. But it does mean you can't just turn them over and leave them there. You have to help. You have to love. You have to do the duty that God has set before you. Seek their welfare. Demonstrate your love. And perform the obligations that God has given you as a member of that family. To do any less is not simply a denial of the faith, although it is at least that. It means that you are worse than the unbelievers who have no hope in Christ and don't know anything about the duty or the obligations of what God has set before them. You have the expectations of family. Second, there are expectations of the church. That entire line of argument is then extended by way to the church. Jesus looks and in Matthew 12, he's told, hey, your mom and your brothers are here. And he says famously, well, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Are they not those who are here among us? So you have brothers and sisters here. They're not just people that you have contracted with to worship in the same place. They're not just people who think like you do or spend time doing what you do or read the same books that you do, who think like you do. But rather they are blood-bought brothers and sisters who you have covenanted with for their good and for your establishment in the faith. You are your brother's keeper as well. Not just the brother that God has given you by birth or by marriage, but the brothers and sisters God has given to you by faith. And so we are to make sure that we have what we need to take care of the least of us. And that doesn't mean just widows. That means any group that needs love and support The situation in the first century is certainly different than the situation now. But we are to take care of those who do not have. We are to spend our money, our effort, and our time taking care of those who are the least of us because we are commanded to by God. So at Crossway, in our budget, we have money set aside for benevolence. We have money set aside so that we can help those who are the least of us. We do this so we can fulfill our obligation, but I want to warn you about something, friend. That doesn't actually take away from your obligation. If you are a member of Crossway Christian Church and you are relying on the fact that the budget is there to take care of the poor among us, and you think that because that budget is there that says benevolence and we've got a chunk of money in there, that's like you can wash your hands. You can say, I'm glad that I don't have to care about anybody else in the church and that the church is doing it. That's one of the greatest fears that I have. As soon as things are budgeted, they become no one's problem or Let me put that a little bit nicer. They become no one's responsibility or privilege. Friend, it is still your privilege to take care of the least. When you hear of a need, it is your responsibility to meet that need. Why not, why not put money aside to help people? Not take away from the tithe or take away from the obligations of things that you already give to the church. But why not put money aside so that you have a fund where you personally can help people who are in need within the church and then larger in the, in the surrounding culture? Why not do that? Why not be generous that way? Many times then, we are so set the fact that a church has a budget for something, that means that we're not responsible for it, friend. Let me me wash away all hopes that you might have of that. You are still responsible to take care of people in this church. It doesn't matter if the church has a fund for taking care of them or not. But that also means that if you need help, you had better ask. You can pray all you want to, and you can go under the assumption that you have not because you ask not. And that's true. You have not because you ask not. In prayer before God, 
But when you pray to God, you cannot ignore one of the chief means that God has given for eliminating those problems in your life, the church. Simply praying to God for money when the church is here, ready and able to meet your needs, is foolhardy. Ask your brothers and sisters for help. Don't just pray to God to give you something that God has already provided for. He has provided for it in the church. Don't neglect the means that God has given for your provision within the church. Let us know and speak to us about that. There are expectations placed upon the church here. Thirdly, there are expectations of generosity. There are many reasons why Paul puts qualifications on those who get assistance from the church. Some, if not many, of those things we've already covered. But behind this, there's something rather unstated in our text that I think is important. The church, I think, Timothy himself, if not all of the churches that Timothy was working with, needed to be reined in on how they were spending. That's why he's limiting the number of people. Timothy's enrollment, or the people on this list, were just too broad. Timothy's saying, how can I help all these people? And Paul's saying, you can't. But there is an assumption by Timothy, there's an assumption by the church that we ought to help all these people. They wanted to be as generous as they could be. And whether poverty or simply resource limitations meant that they couldn't is a separate issue, but they wanted to. In their hearts, they were generous, and it was built into the expectation of what they were. Perhaps Paul needed to rein them in because it was putting the church in a precarious financial situation. Perhaps it just caused too much strain on people's finances themselves and individually. But Paul is asking them to control their stewardship. Now, it's not necessarily one or the other. So if you're going to ask the question, well, I mean, would you rather be generous or would you rather be responsible, right? That's, that's a false dichotomy. You can be both generous and responsible with your money, but you have to, you have to be generous, friends. The general tenor of the early church is one of generosity. We're going to read from Acts 4. And I know the minute that I start to read this passage, into your head are going to pop up all of the qualifications as to why the church acted this way. Let those aside for a second and just let sink in how generous the church is. How generous these first century Christians were who didn't have much. Now the full number in Acts 4, 32 through 35, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them were their own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to any as they had need. That's an amazing mark of generosity. Paul, in taking up a, an offering for the saints in Jerusalem who were undergoing an incredible hard time of famine, writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and he leads with this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Hear those words back to back. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed. 
How does extreme poverty overflow? Nevertheless, overflow in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Friends, those of you who are members of Crossway who are here, please understand, you give really well. We, we have a budget that exceeds our expenses, and we have giving that exceeds our budget. You are faithful before the Lord, and I am thankful for that. But don't confuse that with what Paul is talking about here. Paul is genuinely shocked. He's shocked. Don't assume for a second that because you're good at giving, Paul's going to show up here and look at our budget and look at the way you live your life, and he's going to stand back and be shocked at how well you give. Is there anyone in here who could honestly say that Paul would look at their lives and be shocked at how they gave over an abundance, overflowing and abundant joy, giving beyond your means so that the Lord could use what you have? This is not to shame you, but to tell you to press on. As Paul, Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, do it better. Keep doing what you're doing and do it better. Excel still more. Press on for better and more faithfulness in the Lord. You give well, but friends, we can all give better. There is an expectation of generosity placed on us in this text. There's also the expectation of limits. There are limits to what the church can do. The church cannot do everything. This is why Galatians 6.10, which does exhort us to do good to everyone, is stated the way that it is. Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Even Paul knew in a rich situation that there wasn't going to be enough to go around. You couldn't do all the good that you wanted to do to everyone you wanted to do it to. And so instead, he says, especially to those of the household of faith, you take care of your family first. Here is what Paul, here is when Paul has some difficult things to say to us. First, friends, the church has to be the last resort for financial help. It's clear from this passage that, that there is just not going to be enough money to go around. Paul expects that if you have another avenue to take in order to make yourself right, that you should do that. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says, even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That is not if a man cannot work. It's not talking about a short term when you're in between jobs and you need a little bit of help. It is a continual practice of some in the early church who saw the generosity of Christians and said, well, I'm just not going to work and I'm just going to kind of play this thing out, see where this goes. And Paul is very clear. If they're not willing to work, they are not to eat. Idolatry and idleness are not to be tolerated within the church, and both are of the same vein. If you are simply leeching on the goodness of others when at the same time refusing to do what you have been tasked with, you will not be helped by the church. 
you have a responsibility to do the work that you can on your own, to find the way that you can make provision for yourself and hear very well the difficulties that Paul is assuming that these widows would go through. He's not saying, I hope you go out and fall in love. He's saying, go get a husband. You hear that? He's, he's not telling them to fall madly in love and be emotionally connected to the person that they're marrying. He's saying, if you can and you need to be provided for, go get a husband. That is not an easy solution to the problem. It doesn't sound very good to us and it wouldn't have sounded very easy for many of them. But Paul is very clear. The church is the last resource for people. If you can help yourself, then do. And for many women in the first century, the way that they were going to help themselves by providing is to take up a husband, is to find somebody to marry them, if that was at all possible, and not marrying strictly for love. It doesn't mean that the commands for love and submission are not to, to be there in the Christian marriage, and it doesn't mean that they're not to marry a Christian man. But it does mean that they have other reasons for marrying besides what Western Christians think they ought to marry for. And if Paul is going to look at widowed women and give them that advice, imagine the kind of advice he would give you when you fall on hard times. It doesn't mean that the church is not there to help in small manners, but it does mean that the continual giving of aid and succor to people through financial means is only to be done as a last recourse. So first, first, the church is the last recourse, but secondly, Part of the expectation of limits is the idea that money is not going to fix all of our problems. It is clear that money will fix some of them, but it's also clear that money can stir up more. Money is not a fix-all. We can't throw money at the problems of people and expect that those problems are going to up and vanish. That's not how money works, and that's not how problems work. Money can fix some problems. It can put food in hungry stomachs, and it can put shelter over lonely heads but it cannot put Christ in a heart. It cannot provide eternal security for them. It cannot provide a relationship of, of care and love and a place where they can be nurtured in the faith. It cannot do all those things. Money is not the only solution. It is a hammer, but not every problem is a nail. And while it can fix some, it cannot fix all of them. We need to see good in money and we need to see good in the provision that it can bring. And what's more, that these things are actually necessary. But let us not be blind to the fact that Satan prowls like a lion looking for people to devour. Let us put them under the shelter of the Lord's wings and give them the food of the Lord's body. There is more to poverty than simply a lack of money. There is a lack of relationship. There is a lack of structure and goodness that is found only in the church. There are limits to what the church can do with money. And lastly, there are expectations of problems in the future. There are always going to be expectations of problems. Like I said, money can fix some problems, but it's simply going to stir up others. It says if you just hand out money to people, one of the things that's going to happen is many of the women who are going to accept money will do so because they feel like they need it, they want to have it, but what it's going to do is provide an opportunity for Satan to draw them away. Their idle hands will find a need to be busy, and they'll become busybodies or gossips. And this is something that Paul is concerned with. You don't have to look far to see how money can take away from somebody's faithfulness to the Lord. You begin to trust in the things of the world and you stop trusting in the things of God. It's weird how prosperity has the way of doing that to people. 
because of that, Paul is trying to limit the kind of damage that can be done through simply giving money. These problems will arise. Paul wants to limit them. And so should we. This is why we have a very clear and stated policy. When we do give benevolence, that benevolence never comes in the form of 20s. It never comes in the forms of checks written directly to people. We are not ever out of our own pockets going to be complicit in someone's sin so that when someone says that they have a hunger, we will give them food. We will give them packaged food. We will take them out to eat. We will give them a McDonald's gift card. If they say they need gas, we've got gas cards back there. We are glad to give those things out. If you need help with rent, we will gladly write a check out to your housing complex for rent. What we're not going to do is ever give you money so that you can feed whatever addictions you might have. And it's true. They might not have any, but we don't know that. And we don't ever want to be complicit in their sin. Paul knows that the giving of money can provide problems as well. Furthermore, don't think that because Paul recognizes there are problems here and he's trying to limit them, that he is under any sort of whacked out conclusion that he is going to completely, with this list of qualifications, eliminate all problems that are going to arise that there isn't a woman who's over 60 who seems to meet these qualifications who's not just going to game it. Paul knows very well that that's the case. Nevertheless, go forward with it, Timothy. Friends, money will oftentimes lead to more sin. And giving to people will oftentimes lead to them stomping all over your generosity. Your mercy will be met with betrayal. People will use the things that you are merciful with and the way that you are merciful to them in order to keep it for their own selfish motivations. Friends, they will stomp on your generosity and you have to be okay with that. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This, this accords really, really well with exactly what we've been talking about. The Gentiles do this. The Gentiles are able to be generous with those who they know will receive their generosity well. The Gentiles are able to know that they should take care of their family members when they're in trouble. Your doing that doesn't have any special statement of your faith in Christ. It is loving enemies. It is loving those who are against us. It is loving beyond and above what the normal world does that marks you out as Christian. And if you were to be perfect, you have to do what God does. And he sends son on the just and the unjust. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And he knows full well that when he does that, providing wheat, providing animals, providing water, providing all of the good of life and breath and everything that they have, providing even prosperity for these people, that they will turn around and they will trample on his good name. That they will continue in their sin before him. And he does it day after day after day. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. Our Lord is faithful to do it. Jesus says, friends, you have to be like this. You have to be generous enough to realize that people are going to trample on your generosity and you've got to be okay with it. 
if they're going to treat God this way, do you think that you should be exempt? Expect problems, friends. Expect people to abuse you. Expect them to neglect your generosity. Expect them to waste what you have given to them and then give again and continue to be merciful for this is what your heavenly Father continually does. We are generous because God is generous. He has not given us some sort of off-brand, cheap, hand-me-down salvation that was in the corner of his garage that he wasn't using anymore and he thought maybe you could use it. God instead gave us everything that he had in form of his son, his most beloved and treasured possession he sent to clothe himself in humanity, to take our sin upon him that he might give us the freedom of life that we can currently enjoy. He was an incredibly gracious God. And so God's generosity ought to inspire our own. As God has called us into his family, even into the heart of the Trinity, as we are found with Christ, we get to call Christ brother and we get to call God father. As he has called us into the heart of the Trinity, we should see each other differently, not simply as members of an organization, not simply with worldly affinities and commonalities, but as a family bought by the very blood of Jesus Christ, unified through that blood. That blood promises us to be family with Jesus, co-heirs with a great inheritance that will never fade or diminish. So friends, there is no reason to store up treasure here. Your treasure here will do you no good. It will fade it will rot. But there is treasure in heaven where thieves cannot break in and steal. And because we have such a great inheritance, because we have such a wonderful and merciful Savior, give generously that you may do good to everyone and especially to the household of God. Let's pray. Father, it is certainly a treasure to call you Father. You are not a God who is transcendent and separated in all your ways from our experiences but you have made our experience yours. You have taken on flesh and you've become one with us that we might be one with you. Therefore, continue to make us in your image that we might love those who hate us and so that we might live rightly out the gospel in our lives. May we be generous with our money and with our time. May we care much for our brothers and sisters, whether they are our family by law and by blood, or whether they are our family by faith. May we seek to take care of them giving generously with glad and expectant hearts. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.